0: Well, um, here we go. This week's Parshas, Parshas Miketz, and before we get and delve into our parsha, I just want to share a, uh, a nice idea pertaining to Hanukkah, all right? So there's a very interesting halacha in the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch writes that the mezuzah is supposed to be on the right side of the doorway. I believe we've mentioned this before, we've spoken this out. But it's worthwhile extrapolating a, a, a nice message. The mezuzah is supposed to be on the right side of the doorway. And the Shulchan Aruch says that the menorah should be on the left side of the doorway. Now many of us light our menorahs in the windows. Or not in the window, or, but by the window. Um, but be it as it may, those who light their menorah in the doorway, you'll notice some people do do that even here in the United States. It's a lot more common in Eretz Yisrael. The Shulchan Aruch writes, Mezuzah and Menorah should be opposite each other. Okay. Now, the Tzfasemes asks an interesting question. And he says, The Shulchan Aruch writes this in the laws of Hanukkah. He says, The Mezuzah to the right, When going in, And the Menorah to the left. He says, Why doesn't the Shulchan Aruch just write, The proper place to put... Your menorah is on the left side of the doorway. What does it have to do with the mezuzah being on the right side? They both fit on the left side. The mezuzah is not taking up too much space. Right? So it's not like, move the menorah to the other side because there's no room for it. This is the Hochaz Hanukkah. I, you got to tell me the mezuzah is to the right and therefore the menorah is on the left. What's the connection? He says a beautiful idea. This fasemis answers... A very important uh, idea, and he says, you know, in Ma'us Sur, we describe the damage of the Yavanim. We describe the damage of the Greeks. And we say, what damage did they do? Ufartzu chomos migdalai. Ufartzu chomos migdalai. They breached the the walls of my tower. Right? They breached the walls of the Beis which which is telling us the primary negative impact that the Yavanim, that the Greeks had on us was that they breached walls, they they didn't have boundaries. This, by the way, is a very important idea when it comes to Avodah It's a very important idea when it comes to various Yitzharas. Rosholn Shvadran gives a parable to Yitzhar. He says there there was a um, call him. Yankel wanted Beryl's house, but Beryl wasn't willing to sell. So Yonkel one day walks over to Beryl, and he says, Beryl, I know you're not willing to sell your house. Just do me a favor. I walk past your house very often on my way to work, and sometimes I'm carrying my bag, and it's, uh, you know, it can get heavy for me. If you don't mind, I know you, you know, that's why I always want to buy your house. But If you're not going to sell your house... Can you at least sell me a small area you know right like right inside the front door I'll pay nice nice money for it and I'll I'll just be able to hang my bags there whenever it gets heavy you know I'll give you they gave him a tremendous a nice amount of money more than just, sure no problem so he puts his bag down and uh you know they they write out the deed and fine it goes on for a few months at a certain point Yankel who wanted the house he starts leaving things in the bag that smelled terrible. Started taking over the whole house. People he couldn't live there. It, was, it stunk the place up. So he, says, he says to the uncle, he says, you know, no more. He says, uh, you know, it's not happening. He says, it's happening. It's, it's my wall. I mean, that's my hook right there. I paid for it. I paid good money for it. Don't tell me I take it out. He's like, I'll give your money back. But you got to get it out. He says, no, I don't want my money back. And before he knew it, the the owner of the house was forced out because of the terrible stench that was there. Shalom Shadrunk says, this is how the Yitzhahar is no dummy. He's smarter than us. He's older than us. He's more experienced than us. He's got more stamina than us. So he says like this, he says, Tendler, uh, you know, bring this into your life. And I say, no, I'm not, I'm not selling. I'm not I'm not for sale, Yitzhahar. Not here. So he sorry, just a little bit, a little bit, you know, just a, a little bit. Fine. Fine. I could do that. You know, and before you know it, that little bit becomes a little deeper and a little deeper, and then a little smellier. And then before you know it, it's like what we ask—we turn around, we ask ourselves, "How do we even get here?" Like this was not my intention. This was, this is not what I, you know, what I uh, sold out for initially. What the Yavanim did, the Greeks representing the Yitzharah, their descendants of Esav, they didn't have boundaries. Their goal always was to to break borders that no matter no matter what we have rights to go there we know any thinking adult hopefully will realize there's parameters around everything even the Mishnah in Perke Avos that tells us a person who thinks that what's mine is that's what um what's mine is yours and what yours is mine meaning there's no borders and no boundaries around ownership it says, It's just an ignoramus. It's a, it's a foolish way because the way for things to function is there has to be borders and boundaries and ownership and proper places where we're entitled to be and places where we're not entitled to be. And if you don't belong somewhere, so you, you shouldn't be there. The evanim we say in Mosul, were ufarzuchaymes megdolai. They breached borders. They they didn't respect other people's space. They didn't respect people's boundaries. So Chazal teaches us that where does this come from? This comes from Azus. This comes from Chutzpah. Okay? Even though you might say it comes from openness. But really it's coming uh, it from a place of Chutzpah. A place where you're crossing, you're crossing into realms where you don't belong. And this is why they went into the Beis HaMikdash. Who are you to go into the Beis HaMikdash? What are you doing? You don't belong. It's not your place. You barge into somebody else's home without knocking. Right? You just walk in like, what are you doing? And being victorious over the Greeks, Claudius Yisrael learned, however, everything Hashem does is a message. This is the, this is what we're going to share here. This is beautiful. When we were victorious over the Greeks, we learned an important midah from the Greeks. They came in and broke boundaries. They had chutzpah. They breached borders. And the Rabbi Yisrael was telling us, Look at the Yavanim. There's a Midah that they're using, which really almost, you know, in general, it worked to their advantage. They just misused it. They used it in the wrong place. So what we do is as follows. We're lear- the Yavanim entered places they didn't belong. We place the menorah on the left side opposite the menorah is because the mezuzah is on the right when you enter the home. To teach us that we need protection from the street. We need protection from the negative influences that exist outside the home. The menorah on the opposite side is playing the same role in the opposite direction. The menorah is on the left when we're entering the house. Because when we leave, it's now on the right to protect us when we go out into the street. Let me put this all into one sentence because I know this sounds confusing. Here we go. we we'll put it all into one sentence. The menorah, as we leave our homes, is going to be on the right. If it's on your left when you come in, it's going to be on the right when you go out. Why? To teach us that the same way the Greeks breached the walls, so too we need to have a little bit of chutzpah and bring the light of our homes, our menorah, out to the street. The the mezuzah is on our right when we take the go from the street into the home. The menorah is going to be on the right when we go from the home into the street. To look at this menorah and say, you know what, Tendler? Sometimes being Jewish takes a little bit of chutzpah. Sometimes it takes a little bit. Of chutzpah. People people don't want you. You know, I don't know if you saw this this clip that was going around, um, but there was a, uh, a religious a Jewish religious. I think he was a scientist who was on French television. You saw this incredible stuff. He was on French television. They were hosting him. He was wearing a, a little kippah on his head. And they told him they're offended. They're offended by him wearing a yarmulke. They asked him why he felt the need to sh- to rub his religion in their faces. Why do you need to wear a kippah when you're on television? What's your agenda? It was on public. And he was like, what's my agenda? He's like, would you dare... Uh, if, if you had a, a priest here who was wearing a cross necklace, would you ask him to hide his cross? He's like, I didn't, uh, he's like, his response actually was, I didn't put on this keeper to go on television. I put on this keeper because it's always on my head. I'm sorry that it's offending you, but that's not my problem. Right? And if, uh, a pretty straightforward answer. Where did he get this from? He got this as a yid from the Yavanim. Sometimes, Yeah it takes chutzpah to bring something that to places other people may not want me to be religious in this place they might not want me to, but it doesn't matter now in the broader picture the midah of chutzpah needs to be held you know handled with uh, handled with care it's a lot of TLC because in general the Chazal teach us that uh, that azus chutzpah is actually a road to Gehenna yet at the same time if HaKadosh Baruch who made this midah then we have to know That this midah Is meant to be used In the right place And um, And at the right time And uh, um, You know This continues Titus Right Titus When uh, After destroying The second base Amikdash He captured the menorah And uh, that's the famous arch That they have in Rome And he, you know He was Breaching borders there But uh, the, the truth is The message of the menorah Being on the left Is that the Torah Should be lived in all places Without boundaries Without borders And we have to be willing to uh, take it outside of ourselves as well. Okay, here we go. Let's get into our parsha. Parsha's Miketz. We are getting into the story of Yosef Atzad. All right. Parsha's Miketz. Yosef is in prison, and we're up to Perek Mem Aleph Pesach Aleph, Chapter Forty One, the first Pasuk Now, the sages teach us that uh, most years. Uh, Chanukah is gonna fall out on Parsha Mikates, it's gonna they're gonna overlap with each other. And one of the ways that people connect the two <coughs> to notice immediately, we're gonna start out with Paro's dreams. And in his dreams, in the first sukim, he dreams that he's standing by a river. Okay. He's standing by the river. There are seven robust, healthy cows. Maro bria is are very fatty they're very lean, they're very skinny. They stand next to them. But the Maro is now. The skinny cows devour the robust cows. And and Paray wakes up. Okay. What happens in the next dream? He dreams again, and you have the stalks of wheat, you have healthy stalks, then you have the weaker stalks, and again, the weaker stalks devour the healthier stalks. What does this story remind you of? Reminds you of Hanukkah, right? The weak defeating the mighty. You have... You know, we as we say in al Anisim, we have the tremendous miracle of the weak defeating the mighty, the few, the few defeating the many. And it's very interesting how even in Yosef's interpretation later in the Parsha, he's going to tell Paro that there's going to be seven years of plenty first. And now the reason for the two dreams, Rashi tells us, and not just one, is to tell us, Yosef, tell them it's starting now. Sometimes a dream, you don't know when it's going to start. If it's two, starting immediately. That's why Pharaoh had these two dreams, both of the cows and the wheat. It's going to happen now, so we need to get working on uh, stockpiling the blessings that we're going to have. But Yosef says, in the, sec- in the second set of seven years, there's going to be such famine and such drought. That the seven years of plenty are gonna be completely forgotten. That's what it means, they're devoured. That things are gonna be so terrible then, if you don't prepare properly now, that everything's going to ultimately be ruined. And it's just fascinating how this reality very often um, translates into our daily lives and connects very much with Hanukkah and connects very much with what we deal with on a daily basis. And I'll explain. As far as Hanukkah is concerned, what do we remember? We remember the few. We don't remember the many. We're not, we, it's not a celebration of the millions of Greek soldiers and all of their power and everything that they had. It's a celebration of the few. The Greeks, they're really in the story, the Greek soldiers, I mentioned the story, to tell us about the greatness of the weaker ones. We don't really care about them. It's not the object. It's not what it's about. It's about the, the few. Lahavdil, let's connect this to our lives. Lahavdil. A person has a lot going for them. A person has a lot of brachas. They go through a stage of life, whether it's a day, whether it's an hour, whether it's a week, whether it's a year, whether it's a decade, a couple of decades, where things seem to be going well. And then, things toughen up. For whatever reason, the Rabbi Shalom now says, You know, this is going to be a a different avaida now. It's going to be a different avaida. Our relationship is going to be, going to have to be built through uh, a different avenue. We'll call it. We'll call it darkness instead of of light. When we're persons in that darkness, very often it's very hard to remember the light. It's hard to remember the brachas that was there previously. When the truth is, And this is something that takes a lot of contemplation. And the truth is, it's very often the biggest blessings that Hashem gives us that is the reason why we ultimately grieve. We grieve for blessings that we had that were lost. As opposed to blessings that never came. People generally As a generalization, again, I'm not speaking just for my... If somebody has a parent, somebody has a sibling, somebody has a blessing and that blessing is taken away, so it's much harder to think about the times that the blessing was in existence now. I used to have something, I got used to a specific set of expectations not in a bad way, not unnecessary expectations, but there was a, uh, the word is not expected, the word is reality. I was living within a, within a specific reality where a blessing existed, and now that blessing's gone. It's generally a blessing that was there that causes the grief. The joke they say is the number one cause of death is life. Very basic, right? <laughs> you, you need to be alive in order to not be alive. So you need to have blessing in order to understand that to be able to grieve for it afterwards. Not that we want to grieve chas but when a person's in a state of grief, it's very difficult to remember what happened previously, and it takes real it takes real um, uh, self awareness when a loss happens or even afterwards to come around and be like you know what. That was a tremendous bracha that Hashem, you know, that Hashem gave me for whatever amount of time uh, it was, and be able to utilize that as as a way to continue to build the relationship with Him. And this gets back to the the deeper message of the skinny cows devouring the robust cows, and and Yosef saying that people aren't going to remember even the goodness; they're not going to remember the goodness. Part of the Avaida is to remember the goodness. Part of the Avaidah is to remember the goodness. And this is true not only with Hashem, but inter you know, in an interpersonal way. The Bali Musid, our Musr leaders teach us that a little bit of hurt is not a reason to a little bit of hurt is not a reason to give up on uh previous goodness. Previous goodness. You're in a relationship, and this, talk about a marriage, let's say. Talk about a marriage. So you have a couple that gets along, things are fine for a week. And then one day there's a blow-up. Okay, fine. One day there's a blow-up. During that blow-up, part of the avayda is to realize there's going to be a point where, I can, where I'm going to have to go back to the previous week. And remember... Times were not always like this, and I do need to appreciate my spouse. I do need to appreciate my parent, I do need to appreciate my child, I do need to appreciate my colleague. I do need to appreciate uh, my employer or whatever it is for the positive times and that 's what allows us to move on. It allows us to come back around yeah there 's times people do falter and people do make mistakes and they'll, they 'll they, they something might have been might have emanated from their mouth that they shouldn 't have said and it 's not accused to be said, but on our end. If we've been hurt, part of the way to part of the way to heal part of the way of healing is is uh, by remembering the goodness that existed as well. Okay. So by so Paru doesn't know what to do, so he calls all the Khartume Mitraim, all the wise people of Metraim, Rashi says Khartume uh, the Egypt was known to have witchcraft. Now, nowadays, we don't have real witchcraft. We don't have real magic. Chazal teach us, our sages teach us, these things simply do not exist. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu, when God took away prophecy from the world, He took away real witchcraft and magic. It doesn't exist. Black magic and things of that sort really did exist. Now, what it was is there were people who had the knowledge how to tap into the forces of Tumma, the forces of impurity that Hashem put into creation and work within those forces of Tumma to do damage. It was a real thing. But it was knowledge. That knowledge had to do with how Hashem created the world. It was knowledge that came from, uh, from impurity. And when Hashem took away prophecy, which is the highest level of knowing Hashem, you know, communicating with Hakadosh Baruch Hu, When Hashem removed neviim He also removed black magic because everything in in this world is has to be balanced. Everything needs to have a balance, and um, the the more kedusha there is, the more impurity is allowed to exist. The more impurity exists, the more kedusha must exist. What you find is always throughout history. Until our day, continuing in our day, is how um, is HaKadosh Baruch Hu uh, keeps, keeps everything uh, balanced. There's a joke they say about this. There were two Yidin who were talking on this topic. And afterwards, one, one of them asked the other, uh, where are you from? She so says, I'm from Seattle. He says, oh, you're from, uh, you're from Seattle, from Washington, very nice. You know, t- tell me about it. Yeah, Liz, you know, like this one, right? Tell me about it. He says, "Oh, psh, you got it. Washington State, mamish beyond. It's beyond the the beautiful landscape and the mountains and the weather and the people and the buildings and the the economy. And it's it's beyond. It's beyond. You see God's greatness everywhere. You See it everywhere." So the other yid says, "He says i I don't believe it. I don't believe it. You know, everything that Hashem makes needs to be counterbalanced. A place so great like that, I mean, where are you gonna find a place so terrible? He says, Oh, that's the other Washington. <laughs> that's the all right, that's the politician joke. All right. Right? But everything everything's got its uh everything's got its uh trade-off and everything has its everything has its balance. So Egypt was known to have Top-notch sorcerers. Paro went to top-notch sorcerers. They they had seances. They were able to bring back souls tapping into these powers of impurity. And he tried to get everybody to interpret these dreams that he knew had meaning and nobody could interpret it. So what happens? Now Paro's stuck. So this is where Yosef comes into the picture. At the end of last week's Parsha, we have the story of Yosef in the prison with the two officers and he says to them, they wake up in the morning. This is incre- another credible idea that we weren't, a- a- which, which is that he saw in the morning, this is the end of the last week's parasha, he saw that they had frowns on their faces. And he says, why are you look so sad? You would think that they would answer, uh, because we're in prison, <laughs> why we look so sad? We're all sad. Yeah, what, what type of question is that? But interestingly, it was this question that led to his conversation with them and getting to know them. And when he asked them, if I can help you, and he wanted to turn that frown upside down, as they said, even while he was in prison at, at a young age, and he had been there for a while, but he wanted to make sure that any environment he was in, he was going to be the one to make it right for everybody, to straighten everybody out and try to make the best of, uh, of every scenario. And that and uh, ultimately the Saramashkim he interpreted his dream and Saramashkim was freed. So the Saramashkim now sees Paro stuck no interpretation to his dream. So he says, I you know, I'm I'm gonna tell you something to help you, but it it, it will bring back uh, not such happy memories of you, my dear Paro, throwing me into prison. Um, and if you recall, Paro cuts off a la be Mishmar me and the Baker. The Chamberlain of the bakery right you threw us both into prison and we had dreams there as well and there was a man ish there was a man who was able to interpret um our dreams he did a, a wonderful job at his dreams I shared and showed yesterday just as a complete a complete tangent but a, a beautiful message that I saw brought down in a um, uh, um a paper on the parasha that I get from Eretz Yisrael every week called "Pre Amalenu," And on these words of Chalaymai Chalamnu, we had dreams, it brings down a story of a fellow in, uh, a young fellow in Eretz Yisrael who had a dream that his father came to him his father had passed away a couple years before his father came to him and he said, please, I need you to make sure to study Torah every day and say Kaddish again for me. And interesting, okay. And then it happened again and it happened again. So this fellow went to Rabbi Arne Leib Steinman and he said, what do I make of it? He said, if it's a dream that happened over and over, he says, you got to do it. You got to make sure to learn Torah every day. And you should start saying Kaddish again for your father. And he said to, and and um, make sure he says, for a father to come to a son and beg a son for help is very embarrassing. It's an embarrassing thing that needs to be done. And if your father was willing to come back from the Olam Ha'emes, the world of truth, to tell you this, this is your Kibarath. This is what your." Uh, what you're obligated to do. And then Rabbi Aaron Leib, the guy left, and Rabbi and apparently went into a different room in a small apartment, I guess one other room in his apartment. He went into a different room, he closed the door, and his family heard him saying, Aaron, Aaron, don't be a schnur. Make sure you live in this world in a way that you won't have to come back begging your children for help. That was his, that was, you know, he poskened the Shiloh for this guy, and then he took his situation that he just heard to personally take Moser from it. Here you have a Yid who, you know, who comes back to his child. He's forced to come back to a child. Apparently for whatever he needed, he needed some more schusim, some more maris Naila, but he was taking a message like, you know, a father having to do that. It's it's not it's never easy for parents to ask their children, you know, to, you know, to completely take care. of. Them. Now, sometimes we need it. We need to be willing to. But he was saying he took his personal musr. He was saying, you know, make sure the time you have here to do the, the right actions and to do the right uh, to do the right maisem to, to have good deeds. Because while we're in this world, you know, it's a. Uh, uh, th- that's the opportunity that we have The G'dayilim teach us that Very often we do things As an aliyah for the souls of those who have passed on They say why don't you do something as an aliyah for your own soul yeah? Why is it always what? But the truth is I'll tell you why this works will tell you why it works And this is just an assumption I think we care more about others than we do ourselves But sometimes it works to our detriment Sometimes it works to our detriment We're more willing I know If I'm normal Right we're more willing to put effort into something. Like, if I can't find my coat, or uh, my shoes, like, oh, fine, when I look for it for 30 seconds, fine, all right, no, so I'll wear a sweater, right? Or, fine, I'll, I'll wear my shopping shoes, I'll wear a different pair of shoes, whatever you do, you just, you know, it's fine. Somebody else needs help, you have a kid who needs help, you have somebody in shul, they can't find their coat, all of a sudden, you're running in circles, you know, where's their coat, where's their coat, you know, let's make sure we get the coat, right? Sometimes, maybe it's, it comes from a... a Hopefully from a place of goodness and wanting to help, but we can't allow this to be an impediment for our own personal growth as well. Alright, back on track. So that, that was on and Khalamnu, we had these dreams. So what happens? Vishamita so ivri. See now he's telling Pyro. There was a Nar Ivri. There was a youth in Shul who was an Ivri. What's an Ivri? An Ivri is somebody who of our means to pass over. That's an Ivry. Somebody who passed over. What does passed over mean? Somebody who's willing to be on the other side of culture. The Sarah Mashkim is telling Pyro there was a young lad who was an Ivry. At his young age, he, he was noticeably different. And, um, and he interpreted our dreams to a T. He interpreted our dreams perfectly. Now, I want to focus for a minute on this word Ivory. What's this word Ivory? This word Ivory is crucial for anybody to develop in a healthy way. In Ivory, which refers to a Jew is telling us it's not healthy to be doing something only because everyone else is doing it. And this applies even within religion, even within serving Hashem. We are Ivrim. We are people who were part of a broader community and we rely on each other for support Yet, you can't, we can't be who we are because others are who they are. That's not healthy. That's the famous expression of the Kutz Kareba. If I am I because you are you and you are you because I am I, then I am not truly I and you are not truly you. Because we're just doing it to make each other happy. I'm doing what I do because you do what you do. So I'm not being me, I'm being you. And you do what you do because I'm I. Well then you're not truly being you. However, if I am I because I am I. And you are you because you are you. So then I am truly I and you are truly you. If I'm I because that's me. And you're you because you're you. So that's healthy. That's good. This plays out in many, many different ways. And I'll give you an example. Every single one of us had, has had to go through this and may very well still be going through this. For example, kids, especially teenagers, once they start, the, get they need to be different. They're Ivrim. It's healthy. They need to be different from their families. When I, was in, when I was a kid in high school, I was... Mortified to be anywhere near my parents. Mortifying. I would go shopping in a store. I'd make sure to walk in a different aisle. Like like I'm not related over here. You know what I mean? I'm not related. I'm way too cool for these people. Way like, you know, way, like I'm not. I, I I can't even. Right? And then you have to dress a little different. Sometimes people will get you know they'll start get a cooler haircut. You get a, add a little pin like this, a little bit different, little that. Initially, and this is how we all are. It starts out, again, parents get upset by this and communities start looking at teenagers or young adults, like, why are you starting to dress like this? Why are you starting to... What they're doing is they're utilizing Amida. What we're utilizing Amida called, I, I know I can't just do everything because everybody else is doing it. I need... I. I need individuality, but this is an immature individuality, because what it ultimately is saying is, my individuality is gonna be expressed through my externals, not by what I really offer to myself, what I really offer to Claudius Yisrael, what I really offer to life, to the world, in, in, a, in a healthy way. At a certain point, we're, we're expected, or hopefully we can mature to a place where my individuality is not expressed through what I put on my face. It's not expressed through my shoes. It's not expressed through my jewelry. It's not expressed through my suit. It's not expressed through my tie. My individuality is expressed through who I am. Who I am, the way I think, what I bring to the table, the kaiches, the strengths, which means I'm comfortable looking just like everybody else. Because I could still be an Ivory when I look like you. I don't need externally to look different. To be different. I am different. Because I'm comfortable with who I am. And I know the Rebbeinership doesn't make any two people the same. So my opinions, my thoughts, my struggles, my weaknesses, my strengths. That's my individuality. I could look just like you. We're the same thing as you. wear the same hat. The same thing. Same tie, except I don't like wearing ties. But be it as it may. Whatever it is. You At a certain point, we all need, we all do develop into an ivory. It's a very powerful, you say, it's a very important idea. Very important idea. To develop into an ivory. it starts out sometimes, it starts out external. And sometimes what happened when we do to our kids, it's like, but you can't look, to 40. people are going to say, what's this, that, and that, and that. It's fine if they want to look different as long as there's like a – there's an understanding for those who are obligated to guide them or or us because we do – you know, we, we, we can struggle with this. Just, you know, sometimes, you know, I mean sometimes I know I'm just an old baby. That's what I am, right? I just have bigger toys and bigger gaiva and bigger stuff that my four-year-old has. But I, I'm dealing with the same stuff. it's It's the same emotions. It's the same feelings. It's just a little it's different. I'm older. Hopefully, a little more nuanced and a little. We hope, but so if people aren't aware of this, we just become bigger babies. But the same, the same midos that we have when we're three, four, or five, just keep uh, developing, and just it comes out, and uh, it just comes out in a different way. Yosef was the was the classic ivri. He, was he wasn't an ivri in prison, because. He was a yid who was different than anybody else. The Saramaskum is saying this guy was just different. Different. He danced a different beat. He danced a different tune. He was willing in prison with everybody else, being alone, away from his family, to just be elevated. And to be this uh and to be this uh And the Saramashka goes on to tell to tell Paro that th- this guy knows his stuff. So what happens in Pasigadalit? By Yishlach Paray sends by Hikal and they brought him from the dungeon by Galach he shaved by Chalev he changed his clothing by Yavayal Paray and he came in front of Paray. Rashi says, why does it tell us uh, what Yosef did before he came to parom is incredible? You know why? Kveid hamalchus Rashi says Yosef didn't have to shave; they didn't force him. It says he did it. It's not like they shaved him and bathed him. Yosef always kept an aura of royalty. He knew what it meant to be around noble people, despite the fact that he was around an environment and a society of, of uh, prisoners. So, you know what he said? I could either go to Parai, I could look disheveled, he'll have Rachmanes on me, he'll do this, and I could tell him how terrible this prison is, and that, and this and that, and this that. But instead, Yosef had a whole different mindset. His mindset was, I'm not a prisoner. I, I'm, I'm a Choshua guy. No, nobody's ever going to turn me into a prisoner. I don't care what, how you treat me. It's how I treat myself. So what happens? The moment he has an opportunity, he's going to go talk to a king, he says, oh, Okay, well, I'm going to talk to the King the way a Yosef Atzadik is meant to talk to a king, not like a prisoner. Kvaidam The same way I would show up to anybody else is if I was a, you know, a, a, a big name out there. That's what I'm going to be doing here as well. I'm going to and and he he always kept I don't know always but at least at this stage at this point we don't know what's interesting we don't know every struggle that he thought of you know during his time we do know interestingly you know we talk about his time in prison and his greatness. You know, interestingly, you know we know the story of Yasef looking in the mirror and seeing his father, right? It seems without that, he didn't have an easy time. He didn't have an easy time. It was this development of being able to see Yaakov in the mirror and the measure says that the image would actually talk to him at times. Give him pep talks. Whether it was, voice, you know, in his head, Yosef giving himself a talk or whether it was really Yaakov in the mirror to Whatever it is, but he he had to give himself he he had struggles. It's not like he always had this. But uh, at this point, when it was we'll call it game time, time for him to show up to Pare, he takes a shave by Khalif of. he changes his, his garments. I'm a nobleman, I'm royalty by and he um and he shows up to Pare. Okay, we're already over time. I just want to share one more idea, a very important thing to mention. And that is that ultimately Paro tells Yosef his dreams. And, Par, and Yosef responds that listen, I'm not the smartest person out there. However, uh, there's in Pasuk 25, Parak Mamal but Kim, Whatever Hashem is gonna do, that's what he's telling Parai. And throughout his interpretation, now he's going to tell Pare it's going to happen right, right. There's the the seven years of uh, plenty and the seven years of uh, of famine are going to come, and it's going to happen right away. And really, it's not two separate dreams; it's all it's all one dream. And he gives Paro advice as well, as well, and he says, "Therefore, this is what you got to do. You got to start stockpiling." Huh? And Paro says, "And this is the last pasuk in Shaney. The reason why he chose Yosef, and this is incredible, is because he says, I see in this interpretation that this is a man of Elikim. This is a man of God. So he wants Yosef, who's a man of God, to be the one to oversee now the next 14 years of everything that's going to happen in Mitzrayim. Paro didn't believe in God. He believed in powers. He didn't believe in monotheism. He thought he himself had he had powers. But interestingly, when it comes down, when it boiled down to something like this, he says, I can only fully trust someone who has fear of God. Fear of God. I can't trust anybody. Why? Why is it that Paro cannot trust anybody who doesn't have your the kin? Perhaps the answer is, perhaps the answer is, Because the only thing that's objective or could come from a place of objectivity is Hashem. Everything else, we just need to look around our society and see how subjective every last detail, every last opinion, every last thought is subjective to society around us. It's just about what we're exposed to. If TikTok is deciding... How our youth think that's going to, that, that is the culture. That's going to be, it's not a, it's, it's not a, it, I'm not knocking it. It should be knocked, but it's a reality. It's a reality. Whatever you expose yourself to, whatever I expose myself to, that is going to be my truth. That's going to be my truth. That's how I think. Because as humans, we only know what we've been exposed to. You can't know things you haven't been exposed to. So is saying, if there's going to be anybody doing this, it's got to be somebody who lives their life upwards and not sideways. A person who lives their life based upon how society tells them is is moral, what society tells them is ethical, then there may come a time where it's ethical to... um, Give everyone their fair share. Give uh, whatever, whatever expression you want to use, right? But you can have somebody in a position of power that says, hey, I'm just going to take whatever, and it's not pyros anymore. It's not this. I'm just going to, you know, and then, or it might be somebody who's, I'm not giving anybody anything. I mean, this is all going to go only to pyro and not be spread out to anybody else. It's also not godly. Or it's skim some off the top. It's all going to go to me. And people who do that aren't trying to be god of him. It's rightfully theirs. I, I don't want to put the effort. I put that in. Everything, everything's subjective. It's just a matter of how you think in your mind. And, and our minds play games with us. But if a person's Yuri Kim, a person's God-fearing, it's not about what I think. It's not about what I think anymore. It's not about what I feel. It's about what does Hashem want me to do? That, that's how I run my decisions. And if this is if, if there's a straight marker, a straight line... A specific agenda that has to do with godliness. Paro says, "I need somebody like that in, in my palace." Paro himself wasn't like that, but to oversee all this wealth that's going to come, he says, "You got to take this guy because this guy, this this Yosef is clearly a like him, and he's the only person in all the land. This guy, straight from prison, that I'm that I'm willing to allow him to oversee, you know, the finances of Mitzrayim for the next fourteen years. Now, ultimately, it was." Less than 14 years, because we know after, later on, we'll learn, when Yaakov came down to Mitzrayim, the seven years of famine never really happened. They stopped. After the seven years of plenty, Yaakov came down uh, a couple years after that, and the blessing that Yaakov brought to Egypt stopped the famine in, in Mitzrayim. So we'll get there, but at least for the next while, you know, Pharaoh at that point thought it was going to be 14 years, and that's why he was willing, because Yosef was here like him, to give it all over to him. Okay, we'll hold it here uh, for today. Any questions, thoughts? No? Yeah, I had uh, something interesting that I